Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this episode with a story I was focusing on last week. The unfolding Russian spy saga. This is in the Daily Mail. After 13 days, do detectives really still not know how spy was poisoned? Now police say his daughter might have brought it from Russia in her suitcase, but it is just the latest of a series of bizarre theories. Thirteen days after Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were attacked with a nerve agent in Salisbury, police appeared to be no nearer any answers as to how the pair were poisoned. Theories banded around in the past fortnight include food poisoning, a bouquet of flowers laced with a deadly substance Novichok, and a lethal toxin being smeared on the former agent's car door handle. Now it is understood, investigators have turned their attention to Yulia's suitcase in a bid to find out exactly how she and her father ended up fighting for their lives after falling unconscious on March 4th. But Scotland Yard's top officers are still keeping the public in the dark and a series of conflicting leaks from the investigation suggests they are no nearer the truth. Andrei Lugovoy, the prime suspect in the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, was the first to offer an opinion, suggesting the pair had come down with a severe bout of food poisoning. The initial theory from police was that the nerve agent, initially unknown, was sprayed directly at the pair on Sunday, March the 4th. Both Yulia and Sergei Skripal were found slumped on a park bench in Salisbury and it was thought it was here where they were poisoned. Another report suggested they had been exposed to the substance in a shopping centre. By March the 8th, it was said detectives had moved away from the theory that the nerve agent was sprayed directly at Skripal, a source told Mail Online. They were then instead said to be focusing more on the possibility that poison was added to his food or drink at some point before he collapsed. This pointed the finger at the Mill Pub in Salisbury and the Italian restaurant Zizi as potential locations as to where they were poisoned. But these theories were short-lived, with witnesses claiming they saw the chef prepare the risotto they shared at the Italian restaurant. The notion their drinks were spiked at the meal was also quickly debunked, seemingly putting investigators back to square one. The following day, on March the 9th, Scrooge House cul-de-sac in Salisbury had been completely sealed off as police worked on the thesis that the nerve agent was posted through his letterbox. Again, this came and went, and nearly 200 troops, including Royal Marines and chemical weapons experts, were drafted in to investigate the attack. The quaint city had now unexpectedly found itself at the centre of the international incident as investigators began to suspect the Kremlin of being behind the attempted assassination. While Scotland Yard insisted the public should not be alarmed and public health officials claimed the incident poses a low risk to residents, they were not wholly convinced, with locals complaining of being kept in the dark. On March the 10th, Amber Rudd came out of the COBRA meeting to say police had obtained 200 pieces of evidence and identified 240 witnesses, suggesting they were no nearer any conclusions. Officers dug up Skripal's wife's grave as they scoured the city for clues. During this exercise, it was thought a bouquet of flowers were laced with the toxin, causing the former spy to be rendered unconscious. The cordon carried on extending a week after the attack, with cars, vans, parking ticket machines and belongings being seized from as far away as eight miles from Salisbury. By this time, Theresa May had blamed Russia for the attack and her powers were still up in the air. A day of political mudslinging ensued on March 12th as British, Russian and another leak from the investigation thrust Skripal's maroon BMW into the heart of the probe. It was initially the daughter travelled along inside that they were contaminated, but later that night another theory was suggested that the Novichok was forthcoming from Scotland Yard. Theresa May banned 23 Russian diplomats from the UK and the Kremlin promised retaliation. Another day of tit-for-tat rhetoric was thrown around Westminster and Moscow before a theory 
re-entered from left field. Yulia Skripal was the real target. Sukhar Skripal's niece speculated Yulia had angered her boyfriend's mother, a highly ranked Russian security official, after saying she wanted to start a family, but police appeared to still be focusing on the car. A missing 40 minutes from 1pm to 1.40pm on the day of the poisoning became the heartbeat of the investigation with police desperately asking for information. CCTV footage obtained by the mail showed the BMW travelling towards the supermarket in the city. The exact been the Maltings. At 2.20pm, they arrived at Italian restaurant Zizi, where they dined before leaving at 3.35pm. Between the restaurant and a park bench where they were found, there was a possible CCTV sighting on Market Walk at 3.47pm. Scotland Yard Assistant Commissioner Neil Bessu said they remained in a critical condition in hospital days after they were found slumped on a bench in the Wiltshire City at 4.15pm. Neither he nor the Met Police Assistant Commissioner Mark Rowley have been able to shed any light on the mystery. And as the investigation knocks on the door of its second week and the suitcases become the latest thing, Theory, the public are no clearer as to how the screw house were poisoned. Well, they're no clearer because the agenda is just to demonise Russia, not go by the evidence and let the public know what really happened. They want conflict with Russia, as I've gone into before in pay-per-view. So they'll jump on any excuse they can to continue to demonise Russia and to get a conflict with Russia. Another story here in the Guardian in reference to the Skripal story. UK's claims questioned, doubts voiced about source of Salisbury Novichok. It was a historic moment largely ignored at the time by most of the world's media and might have remained so but for the attack in Salisbury. At a ceremony last November at the headquarters of the world body responsible for the elimination of chemical weapons in The Hague, a plaque was unveiled to commemorate the destruction of the last of Russia's stockpiles. General Ahmet Zunku, the Director General of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which works closely with the UN, was false among his praise. This is a major achievement, he said. The 192-member body had seemingly overseen and verified the destruction of Russia's entire stock of chemical weapons, all 39,967 metric tons. The question now is whether all of Russia's chemical weapons were destroyed and accounted for. Theresa May, having identified the neurovagent used in the Salisbury attack as Novichok, developed in Russia, told the Commons on Wednesday that Russia had offered no explanation as to why it had an undeclared chemical weapons program in contravention of international law. Jeremy Corbyn introduced a sceptical note, questioning whether there was any evidence as to the location of its production. Well, they've not produced any evidence so far that we've seen just like when they accused Russia of cyber hacking and accused Russia of hacking elections. The exchanges provoked a debate echoing the one that preceded the 2003 invasion of Iraq over whether UN weapons inspectors had ever seen the destruction of all the weapons of mass destruction in the country, or whether Saddam Hussein had retained secret hidden caches. On social media, there were arguments that the Novichok could have come from some part of the former Soviet Union other than Russia, such as Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan or Ukraine, or some non-state group, maybe criminals. The years following the fall of the Berlin Wall were chaotic, with chemical weapons laboratories and storage sites across the Soviet Union abandoned by staff who were no longer being paid. Security was almost non-existent, leaving the sites at the mercy of criminal gangs or disenchanted staff looking to supplement their income. Could somebody have smuggled something out, Amy Smithson, the US-based biological and chemical weapons expert, said to Reuters. I certainly wouldn't rule that possibility out, especially a small amount, and particularly in view of how lax the security was at Russian chemical facilities in the early 1990s. It took almost a decade before order was restored. 
in part through stockpiles being transferred to Russia from other parts of the former Soviet Union, and in part through help from US and other Western experts. Novichok was developed at the laboratory complex in Shikini in central Russia, according to a British weapons expert, Hamish de Breton Gordon, and a Russian chemist involved in a chemical weapons program, Vil Marzianov, who later defected to the US. Mirzianov said the Novichok was tested at Nukas in Uzbekistan. The former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, Craig Murray, who visited the site at Nukas, said it had been dismantled with US help. He is among those advocating scepticism about the UK placing blame on Russia. In a blog post, he wrote, The same people who assured you Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction now assure you Russian Novichok nerve agents are being wielded by Vladimir Putin to attack people on British soil. A Russian lawyer, Boris Kuznetsov, told Reuters he was offering to pass to the British authorities a file he said might be relevant to the Salisbury case. It details an incident when poison hidden in a phone receiver killed a Russian banker and his secretary in 1995. The poison came from an employee at the state chemical facility who sold it through intermediaries in Ampule, placed in a presentation case to help reduce his debts. The UK government case rests not just on its argument that Novichok was developed in Russia, but what it says is past form, a record of Russian state-sponsored assassination of former spies. Murray, in a phone interview, was undeterred, determined to challenge the government line in spite of having been subjected to a level of abuse on social media he had not experienced before. There is no evidence it was Russia. I am not warning out that it could be Russia, though I don't see the motive. I want to see where the evidence lies, Murray said. Anyone who expresses scepticism is seen as an enemy of the state. That's what it's all about. Evidence. Why is the evidence that it was Russia? And as Craig Murray said, the same people who said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction are the same people that say that it's very likely Russia was behind the poisoning of Skripal and his daughter. And as I said last time, they can't, at this point, although they're trying to get as close as they can to it, they can't definitively blame Russia. So what they do is just keep repeating Russia over and over and over again. And in the public mind, that eventually morphs into, it was Russia. And this is the way it works. Lies told often enough morph into accepted facts, even if there's no evidence to prove it. And with Russia, they've not presented evidence. No need for evidence or documents or named sources just keep saying Russia. Britain is so unprepared for Brexit the government should delay leaving the EU, a group of MPs is set to warn. Brexit Select Committee is expected to urge Theresa May to delay the departure date so Britain does not leave in March next year. But the radical request has sparked deep divisions within the committee itself and in a rare move several members have refused to endorse the official report. Instead, a group of members including Tory MP and leading Brexiteer Jacob Rees-Mogg have put their name to a minority report which does not back the delay. The main report said number 10 should be prepared to keep the option of a short time-limited extension to the withdrawal date to help the Prime Minister get a better deal. The committee said this must not be indefinite in case the public fear this could be seen as a bid to thwart Brexit and reverse the referendum result, according to the Huffington Post. But the move has left the committee bitterly divided with seven pro-Brexit Tories and the DUP's Sammy Wilson refusing to endorse it. But they were outvoted by 11 MPs from Labour, the Tories, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats and Plaid Cymru members, sources told the website. Mrs May planned to enshrine the Brexit date in law, but she abandoned the plan late last year following the threat of a Tory rebellion. Well, who cares about a Tory rebellion? Why should it be about the way your party is going to react? It should be about what the British people voted for. The majority of those who voted, which is leaving the European Union. If we lived in a 
country where political decisions were made on the basis of what's best for people, then that would be the focus rather than abandoning the plan because of a Tory rebellion or any party's rebellion. But Brexiteers will fiercely resist any attempts to delay Britain's departure from the Brussels bloc. And number 10 has warned that any attempt to delay Brexit will be seen by the British public as a bid to wriggle out of the referendum result. The report, which will be published on Sunday, comes a week before Mrs May is due to attend a crunch EU summit where leaders will decide whether to sign up to a Brexit transition deal. It is understood that most of the key issues have been agreed that the UK will have a transition period lasting until the end of December 2020. During this time, Britain is expected to accept free movement of people but be able to negotiate our own free trade deals around the world. The one thorny area which is yet to be settled is the Irish border, but this is likely to be kicked down the line and folded into talks about a future trade deal in order to allow negotiations to progress. I have no doubt that the delay, even if part of it has been genuinely down to trying to get the right deal, is a delay for the sake of it, to keep Britain in the European Union for as long as possible, and thus Britain is still subject to the laws and legislations of EU membership. And there's another story here about Brexit, also in the Daily Mail. May's Brexit War Cabinet signs off plan to keep the borders open until 2021 as the EU backs principle of balanced, ambitious and wide-ranging trade deal. Britain's borders are set to stay open to EU citizens until 2021 after Theresa May's War Cabinet signed off on plans for the Brexit transition period. At next week's crucial summit of EU leaders, Britain is poised to accept EU demands that all current rules be replicated for the two years after Brexit happens in March 2019. Separately in the boost for the British side, it emerged today that draft negotiating guidelines for the EU on future trade talks have been watered down and now promote hopes for a balanced, ambitious and wide-ranging deal. The exact end of transition is still to be finalised with the EU backing December 31st, 2020 and Britain around the spring of 2021. EU nationals who arrive in Britain during transition will be allowed to apply for the right to stay permanently under Home Office rules published last month. The government had promised EU free movement would end when Brexit takes place. The Sun said today that high on the agenda for the Cabinet Subcommittee, which signed off on the plan to mirror the rules, was a communications plan for the decision. The meeting of 11 senior Cabinet Ministers came just a day after a junior Brexit Minister said London and Brussels were inching closer to a deal ahead of next week's summit. Robin Walker said, We recognise how important it is to secure the deal on the implementation period as soon as possible. I want to stress that we are very close to a deal at this time. The article goes on. Agreeing a transition deal at next week's summit is crucial to Britain's hopes of getting talks started on the future trade deal. In a boost for the British side, it emerged today that draft negotiating guidelines for the EU have been watered down, suggesting greater flexibility. Politico was told the updated draft text says that a future free trade agreement should be balanced, ambitious and wide-ranging. The new language is a significant upgrade on the previous draft, which only indicated a readiness to initiate work towards a free trade agreement. The revised text does stress more heavily the impact of new trade tariffs and barriers after Brexit will have negative economic consequences, particularly for the United Kingdom. In developments on another front today, Mrs May will host Wee Jimmy Cranky, sorry, Nicola Sturgeon, I always get those two mixed up, and Karen Jones in Downing Street to try to break a Brexit impasse on devolution. The Scottish and Welsh First Ministers have refused to sign off on flagship Brexit laws without stronger guarantees Edinburgh and Cardiff will be handed powers in areas they already control when they are returned from Brussels. The Prime Minister faces a constitutional crisis if she is forced to push through the laws without support from the devolved assemblies. 
Well, I've explained before why they want free movement and migration, because if you want a world dictatorship, you have to break down any sense of sovereignty and nationhood and infuse the indigenous culture with the cultures from other parts of the world. So you dilute what, in this case, being British and being English means. And I remember seeing articles in newspapers saying, what does it mean to be British anymore? What does it mean to be English anymore? And that's the goal. You don't want people standing strong as a nation, as a people, to resist any world government diktats or dictatorship. You have to dilute that sense of culture and thus dilute that resistance to being ruled from elsewhere. Different subject now. Transgender makes an appearance on pay-per-view again. This is in the Times. Tough Millwall cave in to transgender bullies. They are renowned as English football's toughest club. Their shirts proclaim they fear no foe and their fans chant no one likes us, we don't care. But even Millwall have given way in a drive by transgender activists to bully and silence their critics. Feminists who hired the club's conference suite for a meeting last week about how concerns raised by women are being shut down through threats, harassment and accusations of transphobia, saying Millwall cancelled the booking after pressure from transgender lobbyists. The event was to protest against potential legal changes allowing people born male to self-identify as women. Feminists say the move threatens women's spaces and rights. So an event that was held by feminists to address how concerns raised by women are being shut down through threats, harassment and accusations of transphobia was shut down because of an accusation of transphobia, which proves their point. Venice Allen, the meeting's organiser, said, I got a call from the club saying they'd never seen anything like it. Constant phone calls, emails, tweets, they were really spooked. It wasn't exactly no one likes us, we don't care. A mere wall spokesman said the event was cancelled mutually with the organisers. We were poured into a drama that we didn't really feel we should be part of. The cancellation came as it emerged Therapy Today, the official journal of the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, has been bombarded with protests by trans activists after publishing a letter saying some young people were identifying as transgender through youth culture and social contagion and being encouraged to medically alter their bodies even though they might later change their minds. Well, that's exactly what's happening. As I've said before on pay-per-view, the earlier you get people used to the idea of transgender, the more likely they are to take it on. That's what it's about. I'm not saying that everybody involved knows that. Most people won't. That's what it's about ultimately. More than 500 people signed a statement attacking the letter as transphobic and saying that affirmation of a child's gender identity is non-negotiable. The statement added, this is not a free speech issue. Therapy today is not a tabloid newspaper or TV talk show. Still has a right to say what he thinks though. Within days, the editor, Catherine Jackson, published an apology for this serious error of judgment on my part. Apologize? What you want about? Say it even more. Go into more detail. Let them know in no uncertain terms what you think about them. If any transgender or social justice warrior or progressive person ever listens to pay-per-view and they have a problem with what I say and try to stop me speaking, then they won't know what hit them verbally. I'm very good with words. I don't mind saying that. I think if you're good at something and you can prove it, you can back it up, then I think you should be allowed to say that you are. And I can be just as nice with words as I can triggering with words. So if they want to avoid being triggered, as they're always saying they do, and it's in their best interest to move on and leave me to it. It really is. But apologising is just allowing the destruction of freedom of speech to continue, because what you're saying by apologising is, I shouldn't have said it and I agree that 
a person should be stopped from saying it. The only way to stand up to this is to call it out for what it is. It's bloody nonsense, but it's manipulation as well, as I've said before on pay-per-view. Where we're going is the end of gender, the end of sexual procreation. They want people to be born, or created even, it's the end of birth as well, the end of parenting, just like in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. They want people to be created in laboratories. So what we know now is family will be gone. Parents, grandparents, thing of the past. This is where transgender is going. And that's why they want to stop people speaking out about it, because they want to stop exposure of it. That doesn't mean that everybody involved who's saying, oh, I'm offended, I, I don't want you to say that, knows what I'm saying. They don't. But ultimately, this is what it's about and where it's going. So either we point that out, or what I've just said will happen. That's the choice, simple as that. The article goes on. The letter's author, Stephanie Davis, arrived, Transgender Trend, an organisation questioning the diagnosis and treatment of children as transgender, said, Things are in a bad way when even a letter in what is supposed to be a forum for debate can be suppressed. She said, Attempts to bully and silence are revealing only of the fact that this new dogma cannot withstand scrutiny. Exactly. As I've said before, they can't debate, especially when it comes to the social justice warriors. So what they do is they just either try to... Well, in the case of social justice warriors, they do both. They try to stop people speaking, and they rant and rave and everything else they do, because they can't deal with what's being said. Well, as I said, come nowhere near me, because you won't know what hit you. People have a problem with what I say. That's fine. I've been there enough times over the years. It goes with the territory. People don't believe what I say. Again, been there enough times as well. That's fine with me, I have no problem with that. It's when people try to stop me or other people speaking that I have a problem. The article goes on. BACP said it had apologised because the letter was not compatible with our responsibilities as a signatory of the Memorandum of Understanding on Conversion Therapy, a document that treats anything other than affirming a child's transgender identification as akin to controversial gay cure therapists. Meanwhile, a woman who criticised a transgender charity on Twitter has been questioned under caution by police and told she'll be arrested if she tries to leave the country. Kelly J. Keane Minshawn accused the group Mermaids of suppressing free speech. She had accused Mermaids, which caused for children to be allowed irreversible sex change treatment the NHS currently prohibits, of preying on gay teenagers and of mass child abuse. Mermaids declined to comment. For me, encouraging a child to change their gender to advance an agenda is a form of child abuse. I'm not saying mermaids or anyone that works for them knows that. I don't think they do. I think they've just bought into the the hype themselves. I think they believe the hype that it's just about encouraging people to feel comfortable in a different gender. But So I'm not accusing them directly because I don't think they know. If they did know, then I would. But it is a form of child abuse in my book. And we need to point out what transgender is. Otherwise... There will be no gender, not too long from now. There will be no parenting, no sexual procreation, and because transgender fundamentally connects into the transhumanism agenda, then there will be no human either. Another story now that has implications in terms of the end of humanity in a different way, bees. This time, 
This is in the New York Post. Walmart may be building drone army of robot bees to pollinate crops. Walmart has quietly filed a patent for robot bees that could be used to pollinate crops just like real bees, suggesting that a discount retail giant could be branching out into farming. The autonomous robotic bees would act like drones, carrying pollen from one plant to another using sensors and cameras to find crops, according to Business Insider, which said that CB Insights first unearthed the patent paperwork. Walmart's plan for the patent was unclear, but the move may mean that the company hopes to grow more of the food it sells to ensure greater control over its food supply chain. The retailer announced Wednesday that it will expand its grocery delivery service this year to more than 800 stores that can serve about 40% of American households, according to the website. Walmart was not the first organization to create a robot bee as a substitute for actual honeybees, whose populations have been in decline. Harvard University researchers introduced the first robo-bees in 2013. Those bee-sized robots could only fly and hover midair and had to be attached to a power source. Newer robo-bees can stick to surfaces, swim underwater and dive in and out of water. This is the technological world we're seeing being built around us constantly now, to the point where there's even robot-bees. Bees are disappearing and have been for a while now, and this plays into the depopulation agenda because from the elite's point of view, there's too many people, even with the methods of control and manipulation they've had up to this point, there's still too many from their perspective, so they want a massive color population. And also, when you look at what I've said before about Agenda 21 and smart cities, they want to make vast tracts of land designated not to be used by anybody to cram people into smart cities completely controlled by artificial intelligence with the smart grid, otherwise known as the cloud. Now we're into the transhumanism agenda. These are the connections you don't get in the mainstream media, which is the whole point of pay-per-view. That's why the motto or tagline of pay-per-view is context and connections, because that's what the mainstream media misses. If you want to make vast tracts of the world uninhabitable and or not to be used, depending on what you're talking about, then what are you going to do with all the people? That's why they have a depopulation agenda. And this thing about drones, it's another layer of the 1984, in fact, beyond 1984 society I've talked about before. See episode four, where you've got these drones in the air. And I remember watching an episode of Black Mirror, which, as I've said before, is well within the bounds of possibility in terms of what it portrays. In fact, there was an episode called Hated in the Nation, in which mechanical bees were used to counter the collapse in the original bee population. But there was another episode that comes to mind when it comes to robotized law enforcement, and that's an episode from the recent series called Metalhead. These robot dogs, if you like, who follow you everywhere without fatigue and without stopping unless you manage to run from them. But that's why in our world, they want drones. This robotizing of law enforcement, Google's involved in this. Of course they are, because they're a monster, as I said before. And if anybody thinks the robots in Metalhead were bad enough, and they would be, they should see the robots Google's involved in developing much, much bigger. Another story here related to depopulation. Microplastics. I've gone into plastic before on pay-per-view. And this, if you like, is an update on what I've said. This is in the Daily Mail. Tiny plastic particles are part of the air we breathe, say scientists, and can damage lungs, poison kidneys, and even interfere with our hormones. 
The alarming spread of the airborne plastics we eat and inhale can be revealed today. A Daily Mail investigation found that tiny, potentially dangerous plastic particles have become part of the air we breathe, as the Chief Medical Officer for England warned the health consequences were unquantified. It had been thought the risk to health was largely limited to eating fish from oceans polluted with plastic. That was mentioned in the article I read last time on pay-per-view about plastic. But the leading scientist who oversaw our investigation, this is Daily Mail, said microplastics had become part of the air we breathe. MP said the findings from the first UK study into airborne plastic food contamination were shocking. Experts warned that ingesting the particles can damage lungs, poison kidneys and even interfere with hormones. The microplastics can even travel across a mother's placenta. And I've gone into a chemical that can mimic the female sex hormone estrogen previously on pay-per-view when I was talking about plastics called BPA which is found from a variety of sources and has a massive effect on fertility and this plays into the depopulation agenda which I've talked about before on pay-per-view it doesn't mean the people that are behind the manufacture of these products factory floor level if you like know what they're doing just like the people who work on factory floor level making sweet food products and fizzy drinks putting aspartame into it and other sugar sweeteners that have an effect on behavior and have an effect on the brain you know what they're doing they're just doing their job but ultimately toxins like aspartame and chemicals like bpa are used to have the effect that they have aspartame is a neurotoxin or an excitotoxin and it has an effect on behavior when you look at the symptoms of aspartame in terms of what it can do for behavior and the brain and you look at the symptoms of ADHD they're the same because the aspartame is causing the ADHD. The article goes on, a report from four parliamentary committees demanded action against our poisonous air. Leading microplastics experts said that we just don't know how dangerous the particles may be. The Mail's research follows the 10 year anniversary of this newspaper's first campaign against plastic pollution. Dr. Weldon, who has studied microplastics for six years, said, I wouldn't be surprised if they're not building up in the air in the same way as in the oceans. Marine life is suffering from ingesting these plastics as well. The quote goes on, they will be fragmenting and still not going away. This is the plastics. We have no knowledge on what a healthy level of airborne microplastics contamination would be. Some of the stuff that we're putting out there may have a detrimental effect. Well, ultimately, it's known that it's going to have a detrimental effect. That's why it's being done. She compared airborne microplastics to the CFC carbons in fridges that caused the hole in the ozone layer. Originally, nobody really cared until it was traced back to having a negative impact on human health and all of a sudden everybody got really active, she said. Professor Sally Davis, the chief medical officer, warned in her annual report this month of the dangers of humans ingesting microplastics, whether by inhaling them or eating contaminated food. In her comments, which have not been reported until today, she said there was a risk of gut blockages and hormone problems from chemicals leaking out of the microplastics and into the body. The human consequences of exposure to these microplastics are largely unquantified, said Dame Sally. It is unknown if microplastic ingestion translates into meaningful exposure in the population. Nevertheless, the burden in the environment should not be further increased. Zach Goldsmith, a Tory member of the Commons Environmental Audit Committee, said the shocking investigation by the Daily Mail shows that this is not a remote problem when microplastics are found in the air we breathe and the food we eat. 
We've seen some initiative on plastic bags, microbeads and other single-use plastics. But that is a start, not the end. We need to wage war against plastic pollution. Every department of government has a role to play. Mary Cree, the Labour Chairman of the Committee, said our inquiry into microplastics recommended research into their impact on people's health. The work by the Chief Medical Officer is ongoing and needs to look at these disturbing new results. Ministers must act swiftly to tackle plastic pollution from every source. Frank Kelly, an expert in environmental health at King's College London, gave evidence to MPs on airborne microplastics last year. He told them if you can breathe them in, they can potentially deliver chemicals to lower parts of our lungs, maybe even across into our circulation, in the same way we worry about vehicle emissions. He told them if you can breathe them in, they could potentially deliver chemicals to lower parts of our lungs, maybe even across into our circulation, in the same way we worry about vehicle emissions. Our laboratory study found airborne particles on every sample of fish from the eight major supermarkets. It means food from any open counter, including delis, bakeries and market stores, is vulnerable to contamination. For the study, we supplied fresh fillets of cod and salmon to a laboratory at the University of Portsmouth. On one sample, scientists found a worrying 139 pieces of plastic for every 240 grams of fillet. The average for salmon was 75 pieces and for cod 72. The particles were too large to have passed from the gut into the flesh of the fish. The Portsmouth scientists concluded instead that the plastics came from airborne contamination, something shops have no control over. They said that while the oceans remain the overall sink for microplastics, there might be even more of them in the air. Dr. Natalie Weldon, who led the research, said the findings had major implications for any uncovered food. Having food exposed to particles in the air for an extended period will result in a higher amount of plastic, she added. Organisms that are exposed to air and are either not cleaned or rinsed as part of the packing process are exposed. The pool of plastic that's out there forming airborne particles is huge. It's a symptom of endemic plastic use throughout our culture as a whole. Dr. Weldon said washing the fillets prior to cooking might help but she added they will also be exposed to microplastics in the home. The particles recovered from the fish fillets were between 0.25 millimetres and 1 millimetre long. They were mainly fibres from textiles used in clothing, carpets or furniture. Professor Kelly told the Mail that research into microplastics contaminated food has not yet taken place but is urgently needed given the ubiquitous nature of microplastics in society. He added, observations from the marine environment suggest harmful effects do occur. The supermarkets we purchased the fish fillets from directed our inquiries to the British Retail Consortium, saying it was an industry-wide issue. Food safety is a top priority for UK retailers, said a BRC spokesman last night. The presence of microplastics is a global issue and involves all parts of the supply chain. More work is necessary to fully assess the risk and determine suitable control measures. Earlier this week, MPs on four Commons committees, including Transport and Health, said they wanted a new Clean Air Act, declaring pollution a national emergency. And the World Health Organization has launched a review into airborne plastic contamination of bottled water after microplastics were found in samples from nine countries across 11 different brands. In his spring statement last week, Chancellor Philip Hammond pledged £20 million for the development of green technologies to combat the menace of plastic waste. How lab revealed cod and salmon is tainted? We bought cod and salmon fillets from the open fishmonger counters of Sainsbury's, Asda, Morrison's, Tesco and Waitrose in London. We also purchased packaged fillets from little Audi and M&S which do not have such counters. The samples were hand delivered the same day to the Institute of Marine Sciences at the University of Portsmouth. In a laboratory proof against air pollution, researchers extracted 
45 grams from each fillet using a device like a hole punch. The samples were placed in potassium hydroxide which dissolved the flesh and all biological matter. Scores of microplastics were found when the remaining mixture was put through filter paper 48 hours later. Most were tiny fibres or fragments. Because the samples were fillets rather than whole fish, the microplastics must have come from air pollution. They were too large to have passed into the fish muscle tissue from the gut after having been ingested in the ocean. The fillets from fishmonger counters were more contaminated than those from closed packets. Microplastics are created when man-made materials break down through friction or the effect of heat or light. But instead of disintegrating completely, they accumulate in the oceans, the earth and in the air. The plastic fibres and fragments found in our fish samples came from a variety of airborne sources including clothing and cleaning materials. The contamination is thought to have taken place at some stage during the handling, filleting, packing and display process. The air also contains microplastics from litter, tyres and packaging such as water bottles. Another source is the fibre from synthetic clothing. It is estimated that 1,800 plastic particles can be produced every time such garments are washed. Research shows that plastic fibres that float around in the air come down to the ground either through rainfall or as plain dust. How the plastics can endanger your health. Hidden menace in the air. Plastics and synthetic materials are broken down into tiny particles through abrasive contact and from the effects of sunlight, water and wind. Polypropylene carpets and furniture, road cones, traffic debris, polyester clothing, bottles and packaging are all said to be sources of this plastic. The particles can settle as dust or be flushed into waterways in the oceans, endangering sea life. But because they are so small and light, many become airborne. Food contamination. These microplastics can be inhaled directly or ingested after landing on uncovered food, such as on fish counters. Once inside the body, the microplastics can affect hormones and major organs. 1,800 plastic microfibers can be produced every time a single synthetic garment is washed. The article goes on. The health implications of ingesting microplastics are not clear, cut, and leading science and medical experts have called for further research into the risks, but a range of studies shows the potentially harmful effects around the body. Lungs. When inhaled, microplastics can lodge deep in the lungs for weeks without disintegrating. This could lead to respiratory problems including coughing, wheezing and breathlessness, and eventually to lung damage, inflammation or scarring. A study has shown that people suffered from asthma, chronic bronchitis and pneumonia after working with airborne microplastic fibres. Digestive system. Fibres from microplastic contaminated food or drink would arrive in the stomach before travelling to the intestine. They could also disintegrate and pass through the lining of the gut. Bloodstream. Experts warn that microplastics could enter the bloodstream or the lymph nodes, essentially transporting them anywhere inside the body. Microplastics have been shown to cause tissue damage and scarring. Kidneys. There is potential for microplastics to accumulate in the kidneys, possibly blocking or poisoning them. Hormones. Chemicals in microplastics can leak out into the body. Studies have linked endocrine-disrupting chemicals found in them with an increase in testicular and breast cancer and a decrease in sperm count. Episode 3 of Pay-Per-View. I talked about how teal receipts have been found to be a source of BPA, which is an endocrine disrupting chemical, which has implications for fertility. And the story I'm going to read next is about fertility. Fetus, a study has shown microplastics can travel across a mother's placenta. Professor Frank Kelly, why we should worry about plastic in the air. History is littered with examples of developments which seemed a great idea at the time but have subsequently been discovered to have unfortunate consequences for our health. The list includes smoking cigarettes, putting lead in petrol and using asbestos in building materials. And in years to come we may well look back and wonder why we ever tolerated the presence of plastic in everything from water bottles to carrier bags. You see, 
the toxins around us and chemicals, etc., are not there by accident. It's by design. And if we lived in a world run for the benefit of the people, we would have clean air. We would have a non-toxic environment. And there wouldn't be toxins in cleaning products and cosmetics, which people would put on the body and on the face. And even if some did slip through, then people would complain about it, they would point it out, and it would stop being used. That's the way it should be. And of course, it's great that there's a campaign by the Daily Mail to do that. But in many cases, when toxins and chemicals, harmful chemicals are pointed out, they just carry on being used. This is why, despite the evidence about genetically modified food and the harm it does, not least in causing food allergies, then in a world run for the benefit of the people, genetically modified food will stop being produced. But it's not because the idea is to manipulate human DNA, which genetically modified organisms and genetically modified food does because they want a genetically modified human they want a genetically changed human and why that is will become clear with the final story of this week's pay-per-view when i get to that but without the agenda for this world being what it is without the elite for this world being what they are without an elite at all they don't need one we don't need an elite um then we would have a clean non-toxic environment and atmosphere because I felt for a long time now and this is just my feeling that tobacco and cigarettes etc I have no doubt that they did not come from nowhere I see the story of Sir Francis Drake discovering potatoes and tobacco by accident potatoes maybe but tobacco I don't think that was an accident I think that story is a cover story look at the damage it does and look at how it was advertised before they were told to stop advertising it. It would have been known, ultimately, what the effects of that were, even if people didn't know to begin with, although it should have been obvious, I'd have thought. I felt for a long time that it was all part of a plan to get it promoted, get people addicted to it, because it was known what the effect was. And, of course, it causes cancer and it causes death, which is perfect for the depopulation agenda. I felt for a long time now that it did not come out of nowhere. You've got that and you've got alcohol as well. There are two of the biggest sold products, if not the two biggest in the world. Both of them have consequences. Alcohol is slightly better because you can control alcohol. You do have a more control over the effect of housing you because you can control how much you drink and how regularly. But I don't think tobacco and cigarettes, I don't think they came out of nowhere. I don't think that was just by chance that it was discovered and it happened to be harmful. I felt for a long time now, and again, it's just my own feeling, but I felt for a long time now that was coldly calculated. I might be wrong about that, but it seems to me that that was how it, how it was. So the article goes on. We already know that microplastics consumed by fish and other marine creatures can find their way into the human food chain, but this latest male investigation adds to a growing body of evidence that demonstrates they are contained in the very air that we breathe. This is an issue I've been worried about for some time. In 2016, I presented my concerns about airborne microplastics to Parliament's Environmental Audit Committee. The concerns were based on two possible routes of transmission. Global production of plastic exceeds 320 million tonnes, around 40% of which goes into single-use packaging. A substantial proportion of that makes its way into our oceans, where it becomes brittle under the sun's rays and breaks into microscopically small fragments. 
To give you an idea of how tiny they are, the diameter of a human hair is 50 micrometers, millionths of a meter. A particle of microplastic is less than 10 micrometers and can easily be swept into the air and transported great distances by the wind. Until they were banned at the beginning of this year, a major source of inhalable microplastics were the microbeads previously used as exfoliants in cosmetics such as face scrubs. While these may be on the way out, household effluent still contains the minuscule fibres released when clothes made of popular materials such as polyester and nylon are washed. Swept away with the household's wastewater, they contribute to the slurry that sewage farms spread over agricultural land. As this dries out, the microplastics are released into the atmosphere, and just as is happening on our oceans, are carried many miles by the wind. When I appeared before the parliamentary committee, there was no firm evidence that any microplastics had found their way from seas and sewage farms into our towns and cities, but it was not long in coming. Later that year, a team of French researchers placed a container full of water on top of a university building in Paris and left it exposed to the air for about a week. Careful analysis revealed a wide array of microplastics that can only have been deposited in the water by the surrounding atmosphere. We have since followed up this work at King's College London, where we operate the London Air Quality Network with more than 100 monitoring stations measuring pollution from traffic and other sources in the capital's 33 boroughs. Since 2016, we have also been looking at for microplastics, and although we can't yet give reliable indicators about their concentration or what type of plastic they are, they seem to be present in the atmosphere in surprisingly high numbers. So how concerned should we be? Although no definitive studies on the health effects have been conducted, are they ever? At least not in the public arena, anyway. One indication comes from the problems caused by the plastics used in hips and knee implants. The erosion resulting from wear and tear of implants causes inflammation in surrounding tissues leading to the death of cells and scarring. It's easy to surmise the damage such particles may inflict in the most sensitive recesses of our lungs, which is where they have been found in patients suffering from lung cancer. Just to be clear, there is no evidence of a link between the microplastics and lung cancer, but these biopsies show us two disturbing characteristics of microplastics. The first is that they are small enough to penetrate deep into the lungs, avoiding the usual methods of dislodging foreign bodies, including coughing and the actions of our mucous membranes. The second is that they exhibit very little deterioration, suggesting that they can persist in our bodies for a lifetime after exposure. Apart from the possible effects of the microplastics themselves, another concern is that these tiny bullets entering the body act as carriers for a range of different chemicals, added by manufacturers to give them properties such as malleability. Because these chemicals are not chemically bound to the plastic particles, they can leach out and transfer to surrounding tissue. For example, the chemicals used to make all furniture and carpets fire retardant, as is required by law, include a group known as polybrominated diphenyl ethers. These have been associated with a number of serious health issues with some shade to be carcinogenic if present in sufficient quantities. Tires are another source of airborne microplastics, and these are laced with cadmium or highly toxic metal. I've come across cadmium over the years which helps make them hard and durable, but has been linked to lung cancer in those working in tyre manufacturing plants. As these examples suggest, the problem with microplastics make it far beyond ensuring that we dump less household waste in our seats. Plastics are everywhere, and in our measurements at King's College, we have been particularly struck by the high levels of clothing fibres in the atmosphere. They are clearly not something you would want to breathe in, judging by the respiratory problems found in clothing industry workers who have been held flock. Microfibers thrown off during the manufacture of the materials we wear. Symptoms of these workers have included coughing, wheezing, breathlessness, and 
increased film production and although the levels of microplastics encountered in such factories are far greater than those in our everyday environment, this indicates the potential to trigger a number of undesirable bodily responses due to the ease with which they can enter the lungs and their persistence once inhaled. Far more research is needed to establish what problems may arise in ordinary homes. Only last week the World Health Organization announced a review into the potential risks of plastics in bottled water after analysis of some of the world's most popular brands, found that more than 90% contained microplastics, one theory being that the contamination resulted from fragments breaking off from the caps. That World Health Organization initiative is to be welcomed, but let's not lose sight of the problems available in microplastics. Are they poisoning or slowly killing us? And if so, might they even explain the growing prevalence of conditions such as chronic obstructive lung disease and dementia? It was once believed that our chances of developing these diseases were primarily down to genetic background, and this is partly true. But now it is thought that at least 70% could be explained by our environment in the widest sense of the word. The food we eat, the chemicals we come into contact with, and of course the air we breathe. Microplastics are a potential piece of that jigsaw. Whether it's a big piece or a small piece remains to be seen, and while it would be wrong to be alarmist about airborne plastics, we have every right to be extremely wary. I'm going to go on to another story now that is about fertility, which of course fundamentally connects into the story I've just read in terms of BPA and its effect on hormones and fertility, which I go into in episode 3 of pay-per-view. Trying for a baby. Five reasons your man's fertility may be suffering and how he can fix it. Trying for a baby is a testing process. It can take some couples many months, even years, before they conceive. That's why it is important to make sure you are doing everything you can to protect your fertility. And it's not just a woman's fertility that is responsible for whether or not a couple can become pregnant. A man's fertility also plays a vital role. If your partner's sperm aren't swimming as well as they should be, it makes it much harder for them to reach the eggs in your uterus. There are several factors that can decrease a man's fertility, but luckily there are steps you can take to manage it. 1. Obesity. Obesity greatly increases your risk of heart disease, stroke, cancer and a range of other ailments. It also affects a man's sperm. A recent study found that obese men have increased levels of inflammation in their reproductive organs which can reduce their sperm count. Nutritionist Cassandra Barnes explained, not exercising regularly can make you overweight and fatty tissue produces estrogen. So being overweight could affect male fertility by causing higher than normal estrogen levels which can lead to a testosterone imbalance. The best solution to this problem is to get exercise and drop those extra pounds. Two. Poor sleep. A good night's sleep is important for our bodies in many ways, not to mention it boosts your productivity during the day, but not getting enough can cause a drop in your sperm count. One study even regularly going to bed past midnight to an increased risk of male infertility. Lack of sleep can lower the production of the hormone testosterone, which is essential for sperm production, Cassandra said. So consequently, this can lower a man's overall sperm count. Cassandra recommends taking a magnesium supplement to help you relax if you struggle to get to sleep at a decent time. 3. Putting your phone in your pocket. Yes, something as simple as putting your phone in your pocket or using a laptop on your lap can damage a man's sperm. Research demonstrates that heat impacts on semen quality, so it is important to keep the testicles cool. Using laptops directly on the lap, becoming overheated through excessive exercise, saunas, external heat sources such as ovens, hot baths and car seats all cause problems to sperm quality. Other studies also suggest that the radiation from smartphones can lower their sperm count, so it's best to keep your phone in your coat pocket or bag where possible. I'll have something to say on radiation shortly. 4. Diabetes. Diabetes is a lifelong health condition, so it is not something that men can prevent in order to protect their fertility, but they can help protect their swimmers by managing the condition properly, something they should speak to their GP about. Having diabetes can also lead to erectile dysfunction, which makes it much harder for a man to have sex. Dr. Wendy Denning said type 2 diabetes is a serious lifestyle disease. However, there are ways that people can reverse and manage the disease through exercise, diet, sleep and supplements. And these approaches can be used in conjunction with the medication that your doctor prescribes, which can be reduced as blood sugar decreases. Dr. Denning works with Curaline Diabetic Supplement, which aims to help sufferers manage their symptoms and also medication. 5. A bad diet. 
closely linked to the obesity problem and a bad diet can also impact fertility. It is important to eat a healthy balanced diet for your overall health but plenty of oily fish can also boost your fertility. Eating more fish can help to save your swimmers as the omega-3s found in oily fish can assist in forming healthier sperm, said nutritionist Pippa Campbell. She recommends eating two portions of fish like salmon or tuna per week. However, as the article I've just read pointed out, that fish can be infested with microplastics. This is the situation we're in. Now, there's causes of infertility which are not in that list. One is Wi-Fi, which emits radiation, which affects DNA. Another one is smart meters, which emits radiation, which affects DNA. And the next one, which takes me on to the final story of pay-per-view today, is 5G, which, is, which makes Wi-Fi and phone radiation look completely safe. Change the subject now. This is a story on one level about trees but why what I'm going to read about is happening has a much more sinister implication. This is in the Daily Mail. Sheffield Council's secret plan to cut down half of its 36,000 trees, despite previously insisting it did not have a target. Thousands of Sheffield's trees have been felled as part of a controversial £2 billion resurfacing plan, leading to clashes with protesters. Now it has emerged Sheffield Council plan to chop down nearly half the 36,000 trees along the city's streets, despite previously insisting it did not have a target. The revelation is the latest development in a six-year battle that has seen the council pitted against campaigners who were seeking to save the city's trees from the chop. While officials say they have removed only dangerous, diseased or dead trees, campaigners say the felling has been only to make resurfacing easier. The council which is working with contractor Amy to cut down the trees has previously insisted that it did not have a specific target for tree removal and refused to disclose how many of the city's 36,000 highway trees were under threat. However, newly published information revealing 17,500 trees are at risk came to light after the Information Commissioner ordered the council to make its documents public. One passage of the document requested by campaigners under the Freedom of Information Act states, The service provider, Amy, shall replace highway trees in accordance with the annual tree management program at a rate of not less than 200 per year, so that 17,500 highway trees are replaced by the end of the term. Sheffield Council's Cabinet Member for Environment, Brian Lodge, said it remains difficult to estimate how many trees will be felled over the lifetime of the contract. He added, any suggestion that 17,500 trees is a target or a requirement is an incorrect interpretation of the contract. However, Sheffield Tree Action Group campaigner Paul Selby called the document a smoking gun claiming it proved the council intended to meet removal targets. The row in Sheffield led to an intervention by Michael Gale when he visited the city last August. The Environment Secretary called on officials to listen to the people and stop axing trees. Well, of course, trees are important for life. They give out oxygen. We breathe in oxygen, we give out carbon dioxide, they take in carbon dioxide. But it's more sinister than that. Of course, you don't get this. You don't get the connections I'm about to talk about now in the mainstream media because it's the mainstream media. But this is about building a 5G network. Why that is will become clear as I go through some points that need making about 5G. People will think about 5G and they'll think because they don't know any different because the media doesn't tell them because the media doesn't know. They'll think it's just the next level of Wi-Fi. We've heard of 3G, 4G and now they want to bring in 5G. I've talked about transhumanism before and the cloud for transhumanism to work they need 5g this is why they're rushing it out it's not just being rolled out it's being rushed out 
Bristol, where I live, has been chosen to be a test bed for 5G. And this weekend, when I'm recording this, is 5G weekend in Bristol, where it's going to host the world's first 5G public experience. People talk about a nightmare waiting to happen. 5G is not just a nightmare waiting to happen, it's a nightmare planned to happen. Coldly calculatedly so, systematically. When I upload this episode, I'll include a link to a very good interview on the brilliant Richie Allen Show. I do recommend the Richie Allen Show. Where Richie interviews Barry Trower, a former UK Navy weapons researcher and an expert in directed energy weapons, EMF and Wi-Fi and the dangers they present to human health. And I'll also link to a document where scientists and doctors are talking about the dangers of 5G. 5G is not harmful in the same way that Wi-Fi or mobile phone radiation is harmful. Both of those are harmful, but 5G makes them look completely safe by comparison. Now, of course, a lot of people will say, well, I don't have any problems from Wi-Fi or mobile phone radiation anyway. But a lot of the harm that Wi-Fi and mobile phones do is in the unseen, at least for a certain amount of time anyway. You know, it could be affecting, it could be affecting you, it could be affecting DNA, but you wouldn't know it, at least not to begin with. Dr. Ben Ishai from the Department of Physics at Israel's Hebrew University has explained how 5G wavelengths can make human sweat ducts act like an array of helical antennas. He did a presentation about this you can find on YouTube. Dr. Deborah Davis, an internationally renowned epidemiologist, president of the Environmental Health Trust and director of the Center for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh, said, this work shows that the same parts of the human skin that allow us to sweat also respond to 5G radiation, much like an antenna that can receive signals. We need the potential adverse health impacts of 5G to be seriously evaluated before we blanket our children, ourselves, and the environment with this radiation. And there's a guy called Tom Wheeler, who was at one point the chairman of the US Federal Communications Commission. And this guy, Either he knows what he's doing or he's clueless and he's just after money. I'm not sure which it is, but this is what he says. And this is so telling of the way this technology gets rolled out or rushed out in the case of 5G. This is what he said. Unlike some countries, we do not believe we should spend the next couple of years studying what 5G should be, how it should operate and how to allocate spectrum based on his assumptions. Like the examples I gave earlier, the future has a way of inventing itself. Turning innovators loose is far preferable to expecting committees and regulators to define the future. We won't wait for the standards to be first developed in the sometimes arduous standards setting process or in a government-led activity. Instead, we will make ample spectrum available and then rely on a private sector-led process for producing technical standards best suited for those frequencies and use cases. In other words, ignore any safety concerns and don't test it and then after it's been rolled out then get the industry to decide what the safe limits are which are never actually safe limits they're just what's the lowest we can get away with but in the case of 5g it's not really they're not going to get away with it because of the effect it'll have this is the way it always goes as i've said before they roll out technology without testing because it's part of the agenda then they say there's no evidence to prove it's unsafe because it's never been tested. This guy Wheeler has also said, the driving force of the 21st century will be powerful processing centralized in the cloud and wirelessly connected to thin clients, said Wheeler. 
Autonomous vehicles will be controlled in the cloud. Smart city energy grids, transportation networks and water systems will be controlled in the cloud. Immersive education and entertainment will come from the cloud. Such futures, however, won't come to pass unless the pathway to the cloud is low latency, ultra fast and secure. What is low latency, ultra fast and secure? 5G. And this guy's talking about everything being controlled by the cloud. In the end, they want the human mind to be controlled from the cloud, which is what people like Ray Kurzweil, Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, are talking about and writing books about. So either this guy Wheeler knows what he's talking about or he's just chasing money, I don't know which it is, but this low latency, ultra fast and secure pathway to the cloud is 5G. And that's why they're rushing it out so fast, because transhumanism depends upon it. Transhumanism is not just part of the agenda, it's the end game of the agenda. Now... Here's the connection to the story I've just read out. 5G doesn't travel well, so lots of transmitters are necessary. And it also doesn't travel well through trees. And that's what this felling of trees that this article talks about is really happening for. And quite simply, anyone who has any concern about their own health and perceptions, never mind family and loved ones, needs to ensure this is resisted. If they don't, they're condemning themselves, their family and loved ones to the potential of endless damage to their health, including cancer. The health risks of mobile phones and Wi-Fi in general are nothing compared to 5G. It's an absolute nightmare plan to happen, it really is. But it also plays into the depopulation agenda, which I talked about earlier, and I've talked about before on pay-per-view. Now there's another story here about 5G. It's written by a CEO of Telefonica UK. And he's talking about the benefits of 5G, which is no surprise given his job. But the reason I'm reading it out is because this is the way these things are sold to us, by talking about the benefits, what they don't ever say, because some of them don't know. And I'm not saying this guy knows either. He might be just as clueless as the mainstream media are about it. He may only know what he's told to do his job. But what they never tell you is that the risks always far outweigh the benefits. This is in the London Evening Standard. Are you ready for 5G? It's time to embrace its future potential. Well, I'm not, and it's not. Businesses, communities, and households across the UK are about to undergo a digital evolution, providing unprecedented benefits for us all. There's gonna be some rubbish talked in this article, but it's worth pointing it out. The way we go about our daily lives, how local councils service their communities, even the trajectory of our economy is set to change thanks to the next generation of mobile connectivity, 5G. In 2018, of all the ingredients that keep our economy and society moving, arguably at the top of the list is mobile connectivity. But mobile is no longer just the phone in your hand. Well, no, eventually it's not about handheld technology. It's about technology under the skin. But anyway... With the arrival of 5G, wireless connectivity will go from something we experience through personal devices to an integrated infrastructure that connects buildings, transport and utilities. A truly smart city. This is what that guy Wheeler said. Everything connected via 5G. A truly smart city. Another name that you can use for the cloud, which is what Ray Kurzweil talks about and what that guy Wheeler talks about, is the smart grid. As I said, they're rushing it out because it's fundamental to transhumanism. Transhumanism cannot happen without 5G. It's just impossible. As that guy Wheeler said, for everything to be connected to the cloud, you need low latency, ultra fast and secure Wi-Fi, 5G. 
There's already a lot of talk about smart cities and 5G and what they mean for people, but few have quantified the benefits to citizens, councils and the country more broadly. And even fewer have talked about the risks, at least in the public arena anyway. When it's here, 5G will deliver faster mobile internet speeds than ever before, rivaling high-speed Wi-Fi and crucially offering latency response times as low as one millisecond. We recently launched a new report which reveals what 5G will mean for our cities and communities with concrete examples of productivity improvements alongside the real intangible benefits for households. The value of 5G for citizen communities examines the difference 5G enabled cities will make to people's lives and pockets. The value of 5G for citizen communities is a report. The difference will help to slash unproductive commute time, freeing up stretched public services or making our energy grids more resilient. It's clear evidence for why Britain's digital future needs to be the number one priority for this government. Well, yeah, if you're clueless about it, or you know what you're doing, it would seem to be a priority. The research estimates that every household will be £450 better off a year. £145 will be shaved off energy bills through super smart grids and household council bills will be £66 cheaper thanks to a connected refuse collection while the introduction of smart fridges will save £236 in food waste. What a great trade-off that would be. Give away your mind and your health to save money. But then that is the world we live in. In addition, an extra 1.3 million electric cars will be brought onto our roads as a result of 5G-proofed energy grids that can withstand mass electric car charging, saving each owner £1,600 in annual fuel costs. The local authorities will share collectively an annual £2.8 billion through efficiency savings. This will come from reduced social care costs for the elderly enabled by 5G monitoring to savings created by smarter street lighting and energy usage. 5G could also help reduce the strain on our NHS as waiting times for GP appointments fall thanks to more people using telehealth services and cities could generate an additional £6 billion through increased productivity. With benefits like these, it's no surprise that the global race to 5G is on. That's not why the global race to 5G is on. The global race to 5G is on because of its fundamental transhumanism. O2 is playing its part with steps already taken to pave the way for the rollout, rush out, of 5G in the UK. We are already rolling out, rushing out small cell technology that will lay the foundations of 5G in cities like London and Aberdeen. And just last month, we announced that we will partner with AEG to launch a 5G testbed at the O2. The government has already made significant strides towards becoming a world leader with the launch of its 5G strategy last year. The ambition is for everyone to enjoy the benefits of 5G as soon as possible. The idea is for everyone to be closer to health-destroying 5G and the end of the human mind because of 5G's fundamental importance to transhumanism as soon as possible. But if we are to reap the rewards of 5G, 2018 must be the year we make strides in getting better access to critical infrastructure from buildings to street furniture. Street furniture is an interesting term. And where regulators, operators, vendors, landlords and industry come together with government and local authorities to unblock bottlenecks. They want to make this available everywhere because if you're going to have a wireless network controlling all human minds it's got to be everywhere this is why people like elon musk who i have massive reservations about is involved in sending up satellites to bathe the planet in wi-fi eventually it'll be 5g because it will have to be 5g as i've said this is crazy but there's a method in the madness they want to bathe the planet in 5g radiation because they need it because transhumanism but also because it will massively obviously contribute towards the depopulation agenda and what we're seeing now with things like 
genetically modified food and Wi-Fi, even Wi-Fi at the moment, is, and in other ways, DNA is mutating. DNA is being changed. They want to make everything synthetic. And people like Ray Kurzweil talk about the fact that they're making synthetic blood. They're working on synthetic DNA, called GNA or PNA. And the idea is that the genetically changed human, not even really human by then, will be able to exist in this irradiated atmosphere. This is one reason, far from the only reason why, they want a massive global conflict, or at least a massive conflict, with nuclear weapons, for the reasons I'm talking about. The idea is that the genetically changed human will be able to exist in this irradiated atmosphere. There's also deeper reasons why they want to irradiate the atmosphere as well, which I won't go into now, but I do elsewhere. They want to change the human genetics so that it can exist in this irradiated atmosphere with the cloud, the smart grid, and which relies on the radiation of 5G to operate. The article goes on, if we work together, we can deliver a 5G future, which will reduce the UK's running costs and make every pound work harder and smarter. Mobile is one of the UK's most powerful opportunities to stabilize and strengthen our economy. 5G will play a major role in advancing our cities so they operate smarter and better. It will also make a measurable improvement to local councils and the lives of the British public. Well, for as long as people are alive with 5G. The future mobile Britain is on the horizon and we should all be committed to embracing it. If we're as clueless as the guy writing this article almost certainly is. This is why I do pay-per-view, to make these points that the mainstream media doesn't make because it doesn't know. So, having said that, that's it for pay-per-view this week. And I look forward to doing it next week and continuing to give the context and connections that the mainstream media never does. I wish they did. It would make things a lot easier. But they don't. And until they do, me and many others like me around the world now, because people are starting to become more aware of the different ways of looking at changes in society and world events and the direction society is taking and the fact that it's not random but it's coldly calculated and carefully coordinated towards a very sinister end namely the end of the human mind and the human race so it's great that people are becoming more aware of that because that's the first step to doing anything about it so i look forward to giving more context and connections next week in pay-per-view so talk then. Bye.